Blessed be the name of the Lord. Glad we are gathered together to open the word together. If you'll open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Now, I'm not even going to begin to think that you even remember that I preached back, I think, it, I think it was in October. See, I'm not even sure when it was. But we looked at these first three verses. And I do not assume you remember any of that. If you do, you've got a really good memory. Thanks be to the Lord for that. Cherish that. But what we considered in those opening verses uh, are three of the means of growth, of spiritual growth that God has given to us. Uh, one of those is, I called it living in the therefores. Uh, the, the word in uh, the New American Standard, the first word is therefore, so in the ESV. I can't remember the, the CSV right offhand. But it, it's the idea that Peter's taking what he has been already been addressing, and he's saying, now, live in these promises that are yours in Jesus Christ. Live in the therefores. The second thing he talks about, putting away sin, dying to sin. And so he tells us to put off malice and uh, all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, that we're, we're to put these things off because they do not look like Jesus. And so part of, our, uh, of the means of spiritual growth is the grace that is given to us with our union with Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection to die to sin day after day after day. Not, not just when we come to faith in Christ. Every day we die to sin. And then the, the, the third aspect of this growth, probably the most common thing we think about if we talk about the means of grace to grow, is the Word of God. That we are to desire the sincere milk of the Word, uh, of the word or uh, the, the spiritual milk that God has given to us. We are to desire that if we have tasted that the Lord is good, if we've tasted of his kindness. So that kind of sets us up where we are. But what I want us to do today is to see where we go with this spiritual growth. We want to grow. What does that mean? What's the aim in spiritual growth? And particularly when we think about Peter's first epistle, he deals with suffering. I mean, if you ask, you know, what's Peter's great purpose? It's hope in the midst of suffering, hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to see the means of grace that God has given to us to grow, the aim for that growth, where that growth is taking us in light of living in a world where we face suffering. If you will, if you'll stand, if you're able to do that, and we will read verses 4 and 5. I'm going to be reading from the ESV this morning. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Praise be to God. All right, be seated, please. Suffering comes in varieties of ways. I mean, none of us is immune to suffering. 
Uh, sometimes we're verbally assaulted for our faith in Christ. Other times we go through difficult illnesses or diagnoses that we're, we're struggling with. Sometimes we face family alienation because we're followers of Jesus Christ. And then other times we suffer through loss. So how do we prepare for living life in a world where suffering is just part of living in this world? Well, Monday morning, believers in Nashville suffered through loss. Uh, a small Christian school, uh, Pastor Joshua was praying for that Covenant Christian School housed in a PCA church, uh, suffered the loss of three students and three of the staff and workers at the hands of a violent perpetrator who apparently took out her anger and her hatred on this Christian school that at some point she once attended. Children suffered, and parents suffered, and church members suffered, and the community in Nashville suffered, and beyond Nashville, we have suffered with them as we see this manifestation of evil against those representing faithful gospel community. Knowing that this was no random shooting, as unfortunately we see so often in our own community, but rather one in which this assailant very intentionally intended to kill people representing the Christian community, it reminds us of the wickedness around us and the inevitability of suffering in this to the victims and the ties to the families in, in that community are, are, are so close. Shortly after it happened, one of my close friends who knows Pastor Chad Scruggs texted me and said, pray for Chad Scruggs. His daughter had just been killed. And I thought, well, I wonder if she was in a car wreck. I didn't know anything was going on. And so I said, what happened? He said, turn on your television. I popped the monitor up and suddenly began to see what was happening in Nashville. I texted two pastor friends that are uh, dear to me, one I've known for many, many years. They're part of our pillar network. And I said, did, did you have anyone in your church that was part of this? And the, the pastor that I've known for so many years said, said yes. His associate pastor that I spent some time with not too long ago had three children in the school. And as the killer was on that second floor, she walked right past this room where his oldest son was. And then she entered the room and she killed children. And then she tried to get into the room where his eight-year-old daughter was. And by the grace of God, the lock held and she didn't get in. My son-in-law was supposed to be on a phone call with other heads of schools, Christian schools in Tennessee on Monday morning. And he was tied up in a meeting, couldn't get away. But Catherine Kuntz, the, the head of school, was at this school, was on that phone call. And she left that call. She was a, a, friend, of, was a friend of my son-in-law. And she left that call to try to stop what was going on. And those colleagues were the last to see her alive. We suffer with them. It's, it's been on our hearts and minds all week. We grieve. We lament how long, O oh Lord. We pray. We plead for the Lord to heal the wounds, to 
bring them under the shadow of His wings so that, as Psalm 63 says, they will once again be able to sing for joy. This is why we go to the Word. We're helped particularly by Peter's epistle because he talks about suffering saints. He talks about the struggles and difficulties that we go through. It's interesting that we're not told all the circumstances of suffering as Peter begins to deal with this. But it appears to be wide. He covers the whole gamut of suffering. Even in the opening verses, 3 through 7, he opens up and, and he speaks of God's work in the new birth and the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and the imperishable inheritance that we have and the keeping power of God so that those who have been grieved by various trials, the word means multicolored trials, they come in all kinds of directions. Those who have been grieved by various trials for the testing of their faith would be able to prove that they're genuine, that they may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then you get over to chapter 2, and Peter talks about the suffering of slaves and that un, uh, injustice they, that they would go through by harsh masters while learning to endure their sorrows and their suffering even as Jesus did as their example. And he suffered, we see in chapter 2, bearing our sins in his own body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then the promise that while enduring sufferings, by his wounds you have been healed. And I think John brings that to grand fruition as we were singing about a moment ago. He, Jesus, will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things are passed away. We're still living in those things, but one day they will be the former things. And then you get to chapter 3, and it tells us, even if we suffer for righteousness' sake, Peter said, you will be blessed. Only a Christian can say that. Even if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And then to prepare for that, we're to so grow in Jesus Christ so that people say, how in the world do you act like you're blessed in the middle of what's going on in your life? We'll be able to give an apologia, a defense, a reason for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and reverence. And then uh, in, in chapter 4, he, uh, or uh, again in chapter 3, he talks about how if we should suffer, it's better to suffer for, what's doing, uh, for what is good and why we're doing good rather than suffering for what is evil. And he says, uh, knowing that we have this wise, gracious, loving, sovereign Lord, even in the middle of the suffering. Then you get to chapter 4 and those opening verses. That happened to be the passage where I preached the very first sermon I ever preached. It was not very good, but in, I was 16 years old, and this was the text, 1 Peter chapter 4. And here he identifies our sufferings with Christ's sufferings. 
Brothers and sisters, imagine that. The suffering of our Lord. And yet, he's identifying us with them, indicating that when we see suffering as our lot in union with Jesus Christ while living in a fallen world, when that happens, we break from the patterns of the unbelieving world. We are learning to live in Christ even in suffering. And we face the fiery trials, he says later in verses 12 and 13, testing us, uh, learning that every suffering that we endure, we share the sufferings of Christ, that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. And he ends the epistle with yet another reminder about suffering. In chapter 5, verse 10, he, he says, And after you have suffered a little while, notice he doesn't say, if you have suffered a little while. He says, this is inevitable. You say, boy, you're really cheering me up today. I hope what we see in the Word will cheer our souls in the middle of it. He says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He is doing that amid our suffering. And so this trip through 1 Peter begs the question, what does it take to prepare for suffering? Peter said in chapter 4, arm yourselves in the same way Christ did. Not with guns and knives and bombs and sticks and whatever else. No, arm yourselves with the same thinking of our Lord Jesus Christ. Arm yourselves with those spiritual disciplines that God has given to you so that we learn to approach suffering even as Jesus did. We know it will come. It may come in many different directions. It may come through different periods of life. But how do we prepare? We keep growing in Christ. We mature as followers of Christ. And here's what I want us to focus on this morning. Spiritual growth leads us to Jesus as our joy and life in suffering. Spiritual growth leads us to Jesus as our joy and life, even in suffering. But what does that look like for the church? I want us to consider it under two headings. First, spiritual growth keeps bringing us to Jesus. And second, spiritual growth keeps uniting us, the church, in life and service. So first, spiritual growth keeps bringing us to Jesus. There's a proposition in verse 3. If you have tasted that the Lord is good, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord, then there's going to be this action that you're going to be going to Christ. So he exhorts us, you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, now for your spiritual growth, what do you do? You keep going to Christ. This is the regular ongoing aim of our spiritual growth. As he says in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, choice and precious. Literally, as you keep coming to him. What, what Peter's telling us, this is everyday life for the Christian. This is where we grow and mature and develop in our spiritual disciplines. That we just keep coming to Jesus. And the intention of spiritual growth 
through those disciplines of word and prayer and dying to, to sin and dying to self and worship and fellowship and witness is to keep bringing us to Jesus. Or we could compress it in those, those three areas of discipline in verses 1 and 2 that we live in the therefores. We die to sin. We put away sin. We're, we put away those things of the flesh. And we long for God's gospel-focused word. We learn to live in the word. As we practice these disciplines, he says, we come to him. I love what the Australian Alan Stibb said, that this expresses the idea of drawing near with the intention to stay and enjoy personal fellowship with Jesus. That's what we're doing. And so what Peter does, he moves us away from the mechanical approach to the Christian life. Now, you know what I mean by this. Well, I've got to read the Bible today, you know. I've got to do something in it, so I'm just open. I do the lucky dip method. and Oh, okay, you know, here, here it is. And we, we read a couple of verses. We can check the list. Pray a little prayer. Oh, I'll wait and pray when I go to bed. And, man, you're one of those. You put your head on the pillow and you're gone. And so you get a few words out. The Lord Jesus, and that's it. Or you maybe do a little spiritual talk. All those things are good. Thanks be to the Lord for them. But all the while, your duty, so we can fit in well with the Christian community. Yeah, I've done my duty. I've read a little Bible. Yeah, I've tossed up a couple of prayers. Yeah, I've said a few praise the Lord's. But Peter blows that up. That's not what's happening in spiritual growth, but rather three things. One, we keep coming to Jesus because we are needy. We keep coming to Jesus because we are needy. The more we grow, the more we feel our neediness before the Lord. So if you came this morning to this worship gathering and you think, I have such need in my heart, bless God. That's good. That's healthy. That's where you want to be. We're not just needy when we slipped into some bad patterns. And we are needy when that happens. But we're needy every day. As we grow in Christ, we see him in his divine perfections. Then we see ourselves as sinners. We see ourselves under the just judgment of God. But instead, we've received mercy through the Lord Jesus Christ. We feel our weakness when, and, and how that apart from Jesus giving us strength and enabling us, we can't walk in obedience with him. We can't serve in faithfulness. We can't worship in spirit and, and in truth. That's why we keep coming to him. That's why it's, this is a continual practice because it is only in Jesus Christ that our soul needs will be met. It's only in relationship to him that we find life and joy, and we find the hope in the journey through which we're enduring the challenges of life. Do you ponder your neediness in the Lord? Do you think about it? you sometimes get overwhelmed? Or are you one that just so stuffs your schedule with all kinds of things to keep from pausing and seeking the Lord and asking Him to show you your own soul dependence. We need to pray with the psalmist, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Test me, try me, and know my thoughts. 
See if there are any wicked ways in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I mean, we get so busy with activities, maybe even spiritual things, good things, that how often are we still and quiet so that we know that the Lord alone is God and we are not? As Psalm 46.10 teaches us. I mean, here's where we need to read the Psalms over and over. Uh, the psalmist continually felt this need before the Lord. You, you notice that as you read through the Psalms. And you think, man, what a needy bunch of writers, David and Asaph and, and others. But listen, Psalm 69, verses 1 to 3. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I've come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. That's neediness. Or Psalm 38, verses 1 to 3. O Lord, rebuke me not in your wrath, and chasten me not in your burning anger. For your arrows, boy, you sense this conviction, for your arrows have something deep into me, and your hand has pressed down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation and no health in my bones because of my sin. Unless we know how deeply we need the Lord, our motivation to seek Him and meet Him in spiritual growth will falter. And often it's suffering that brings us to that point where we suddenly realize I need you desperately. Isn't that odd that something that is so bad becomes something that is so good that the Lord works in us? Do you feel that need for Him? Is that your daily consciousness? Maybe you've never come to faith in Christ, and so you're thinking, well, what you're saying is really oddball to me. Would you ask the living God to be merciful to you and show you your need for him? Would you ask him, would you be so bold to do that? Would you read the scripture to see that you desperately need him and you need the provision that he's made in Jesus? Because neediness is welcome because it is in Christ that we go and we find satisfaction. Second, we keep coming to Jesus because we're needy, but we also keep coming to Jesus because he is sufficient. Now, notice the imagery. As you come to him, a living stone. Now, a couple of verses later, uh, Peter, in verses 6 and 7, talks about this stone. We were singing about this earlier. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And and down in the next verse, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So he uses this kind of, of building metaphor to help us think about a, a, a stone in which everything in the building was held together. Everything was sighted. Everything fit together because of that stone. And yet, he is the one that the builders, the religious leaders, rejected. And then he, in verse 4, he pulls this together and he said that he is this living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, 
chosen and precious. Now, you know, reading the Old Testament, that the Jews, and even in the New Testament, the Jews valued the temple above everything else. But the Lord is declaring in these prophetic words in verse 6 and, and verse 7 that he has given something far better than the temple. He's given his son who becomes the temple for us. You remember Jesus could say uh, to the, uh, some of the religious leaders, uh, I say to you, there is something greater than the temple here. And some of the religious leaders were eyeing the temple. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John said, this is what he meant. He was speaking of the temple of his body. And so you get to John's revelation, Revelation 21, and in verse 22. And John saw new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And he said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb or its temple. We don't need the temple anymore. That's why, you know, I hear these groups talking about, man, they're going to be rebuilding the temple. Why? Jesus is the temple. He is the one to whom we go. He's the one that fulfilled everything that took place in the temple. He was not only the temple, he became the sacrifice that was offered in the temple. And so it is Jesus that has satisfied. He is as that atoning sacrifice that Pastor Joshua was, was speaking of and, and read from uh, 1 John chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the word is hilasmas. He's the, the, the Old Testament translators of the, uh, the, the or Greek translators of the Old Testament, where they translated from Hebrew into Greek. The word they use for the mercy seat is this word, hilasmas. He's the propitiation. He's the atoning sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. And so when, when you begin to think about all that took place in the Old Testament, and maybe if you're unbelieving and you've heard some of this stuff about all this building of a tabernacle and building of a temple and all these sacrifices that went on and the Day of Atonement and the Holy of Holies and all that, Jesus fulfilled it all. That's why we didn't come in today and bring a goat and offer blood on a mercy seat christ is our mercy seat and it's christ's blood that covers that mercy seat and there's satisfaction and there my friend is forgiveness and so he says as you come to him a living stone living because this sin-bearing lord jesus christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father you're not coming to one who flinches or faints at death. You're not coming to one who cowers when a killer enters a building. You're not coming to one like that. Death has no more claim on him. Nor does death have claim on us because we're united in him. That doesn't mean we don't die physically. But it means that he's changed the whole dimensions of how we are affected by death. Death is not the end. It's not some point of annihilation. It's not something to fear. It is the point of crossing over into life forever in his presence. That's why Paul could quote uh, the, the prophets, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? 
That's a pretty big taunt, isn't it? Do you see how living in him as a living stone? The writer of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 said, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, so that through death, so that through death, uh, he might uh, render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. I, I like what Sam Patterson, who was a, the, the first president of RTS, put it. He said, Christ has made death his handyman and has reduced death to a servant who can only open the door to heaven for Christ's people. So let me ask you, do we get saved and suddenly, no more fear of death? Hey, I've been around for a while. It's not the case. We struggle, don't we? We struggle. It's, it's reality. That's why we keep coming to Jesus. And if we're not regularly coming to him, those fears are going to mount. But we come to him, this living stone, the one raised from the dead, to free us from every fear of death that rises in our minds. And so keep coming to him. Keep seeing him as your sin-bearing Savior. Keep seeing him as your resurrection, life-giving Lord. Keep seeing him as your ascended, reigning, heavenly mediator. It is only as we, through the means of grace, come to him and rely upon him that we discover the power of life in Jesus, growing spiritually as we come to him. And as we come to him, we find he's sufficient. Over and over, we find he's sufficient. And he calms those fears. He relieves our guilt. He shoulders our burdens and our heartaches. He comforts us in afflictions. And he fills us with hope in his promises. So we keep coming to Jesus because we're needy. We keep coming to Jesus because he's sufficient. And third, we keep coming to Jesus because he is worthy as we utilize the means of grace for spiritual growth, as we live in his promises, those therefores, as we die to sin, as we feed on the word, as we pray, we keep coming to him, as this passage says, as a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. So we've, we've read in the scriptures about how after the triumphal entry in Jerusalem, the crowds jeered and, and mocked uh, the, the Lord Jesus. They called for his death. The religious leaders, uh, the, the priests, the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin mocked him, and they called him a blasphemer, and they condemned him as unworthy to continue living. They rejected him because he didn't fit the kind of Savior that they wanted. Maybe, maybe some of you today are saying, Jesus is not fitting my mold. Good. You don't need a Savior like that. You're in trouble if you have that kind of Savior. You need a Savior like Jesus Christ, who redeems people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. I mean, they wanted a political Savior, not a sin-bearing Savior. They looked for a king that would fight the Romans, not a king who would destroy the works of the devil in establishing the eternal kingdom. They looked for a spokesman who would rubber stamp their religious ideas, 
But Jesus came as the light of life and the Word made flesh that through Him we might come to God. And so Christians continue suffering at the hands of those who have that same kind of thinking. They've looked at Jesus and they consider Him unworthy. And yet we look at Him and we say, no, He's worthy of everything. And so people still reject Jesus. They reject Him They examine him. The word literally means to reject after examination. They look at him, this cross of Jesus, this resurrection that they would deny. If if Jesus is rejected like that, do you think folks are going to be in that have rejected him are going to think fondly of us? No, they're they're going to be rejecting us too. And we've encountered it in conversations, we've seen it in the media. We've seen it in, in uh, political stuff and platforms of all kinds of, of anti-God sentiment in the world. Uh, we, we see it with godless lifestyles being, being promoted. And so we need not be shocked that those who mocked Jesus will mock us. Those who mock that bloody death and resurrection are going to uh, mock the very people Jesus came to redeem. We don't need to be shocked by that. It's only when a spiritual awakening blows through that the very ones that have rejected Jesus begin to see, no, there's something different about him. But this Jesus, this living stone, in the sight of God, referring to the Father, is chosen and precious. The CSB has chosen and honored by God. The New Living Translation actually at this point has a helpful translation. He is precious to God who chose him. And so the emphasis is that God the Father chose or elected, that's the word here, Jesus, so that Peter is borrowing language from what he said on the day of Pentecost. Remember Acts chapter 2, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so the the preciousness of Jesus implies that he is highly valuable to God. He is a gift from God the Father beyond all expense and worthiness. And we're to feel something of the contrast that men who are but dust reject Jesus, but God the Father who created the world considers the Son in whom he is well pleased, valuable beyond all the worlds. And so we're told through the means of spiritual growth to keep coming to him who in the sight of God is chosen and precious. But what do we do so often? We complain, we murmur, we grumble, we get lazy, we, we get distracted from seeking the Lord, we fail to grow in our disciplines, and yet God has given us the means for which we might come to the Lord Jesus, the Lamb of God who is slain, who is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor us to see Jesus with new eyes, to taste him. You sometimes say, Lord, I want to taste you, to taste him with fresh desire to love him with renewed affections, to enjoy him with intense delight and joy. John Calvin, in commenting on this text, says that, that he only makes progress in the gospel who in heart 
comes to God. And we will not come to him apart from the means he's provided. So if you've got some scheme of how you're, you're going to come to God, but it's not what God has given you in the word as a means of grace, chunk it. It's not going to help you. But rather, as we come to him, as we grow in Christ, he prepares us for every trial and adversity and setback and challenge and hurt and loss. Embrace the means of grace to keep coming to him. So spiritual growth keeps bringing us to Jesus. Second, spiritual growth keeps uniting us in life in service. Spiritual growth keeps uniting us in life and service. Just as we're affected by one another's suffering, we're also affected by one another's spiritual growth. I mean, the, these verses that are, are, are demonstrating that while we work on spiritual growth individually, and certainly we should, it is also a corporate practice we give single-minded attention to Jesus Christ. We come to him daily, finding him as our life and joy. But that act of growth contributes to the growth and maturity of this entire body. Look at the movement in verse 4. We come to him, and then verse 5, Jesus is building his church. We come, he builds. I mean, think of the interweaving of our lives. 1 Corinthians 12, 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. So life together in Christ's church means that what happens individually affects corporately. And when it comes to our spiritual growth, if you're being spiritually lazy and undisciplined, you're not just affecting you. You're affecting the body. That's how he's made us. That's how he's woven us together. That's why church membership is so critically important. As we come to Christ, he builds up the church as a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. And as we come to Christ, he shapes us into a holy priesthood. We become corporately priests. Consider three aspects of this. First, Jesus keeps building his church. The, the verb in, in verse 5 is ongoing. It's this lively action of Jesus in building us together. He said, you yourselves, all right, you've come to this living stone. Now, you yourselves like living stones. How can we be living stones? Because we're united in Jesus Christ, who is the living stone. Because uh, since we're in him, we're made alive in him. You like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So, who's doing the building? Not us. The passive voice means that Jesus is the one, the one who in the sight of God is chosen and precious is doing the building. But Jesus told us that, didn't he? In Matthew 16, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades cannot prevail against it. And he hadn't changed his mind on that. And so block by block and stone by stone and wall to rafter to room, Jesus is building the building. And, and certainly we can look at this as something Jesus does with the universal church, the invisible church. But Peter wasn't an invisible sort of guy. He was hands-on. 
He was into the middle of everything. We certainly see that the way Peter lived his life. And so he's writing to a group of suffering churches to encourage them, even amid the hardships and opposition, that Jesus is building them together into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. And suffering doesn't change that aim. What happened Monday in Nashville doesn't change the aim of what the Lord is doing in the lives of those brothers and sisters. He built us as a spiritual house. Literally, it's the idea, a house that is suitable to the Spirit's indwelling. When suffering comes, what do we do? Fold the tent? Give up? No, instead, we're all in Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, where he talked about how the church is built upon Uh, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles and prophets, kids, when when he talks about this, he's talking about the revelation that came through the apostles and prophets. So he's talking about Scripture. He's talking about New Testament Scripture in particular here. But the church is built upon the revelation of God and Jesus himself is the one in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also, church, are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The same Lord who saved us by his death and resurrection is presently working to build and shape us into a suitable dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. Remember how the Jews labored to build the tabernacle and then the temple so that God might dwell in them and among them, that was just a picture. It just foreshadowed the grander reality of what God has done in Christ. This consciousness that Christ has saved us and now He's building us so that the Spirit of God might dwell in us as the people of God. And as we grow together, the Spirit's presence among us becomes more noticeable. It's not manufactured. It's not some program we do. It's gospel fruit in its evidence of the work of Jesus. And so he builds us, he says, as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. No longer the tribe of Levi being the only priest. No, it's all of you. You're priest unto the Lord. Every single member, he says, is part of this holy priesthood. You, you have this new status, this new privilege And so we're a spiritual house, a new temple, a holy priesthood, so that we are corporately a body of priests. Tom Schreiner explains that this kind of metaphorical language shouldn't surprise us that the church is God's dwelling place by the Spirit in His new priesthood. Instead of the Old Testament temple, you've got a bunch of of outposts for the kingdom of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, scattered in community after community. And corporately, he's indwelling us. And if we're a holy priesthood, then we are set apart to be a holy people, to belong only to the Lord. Uh, The church, not some other religious institution, even if it's doing good work. The church is God's plan to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So Jesus keeps building the church. Second, Jesus keeps enabling his church. A holy priesthood we are, he says, 
so that we might offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. In, in this ministry, as Greg Bill says, the church is an expanding living temple of witness of God's saving presence. You, you see, Jesus doesn't save us and make us a spiritual house and entrust us with a holy priesthood for us to be a bunch of mannequins in a window somewhere. The, the priesthood was active. They, I mean, they were worshiping. They were offering sacrifices. They were talking about the Lord. They were teaching the people. And if you study about the description in the tabernacle and the temple, there were no chairs. They were engaged. And so the picture that's being given to us is that the call of Jesus upon our lives doesn't require seminary, doesn't require some special calling. No, it's just the call to belong to him and through the Holy Spirit, he enables us and strengthens us to live out the reality of the gospel and be a people that is a holy priesthood. So what do, the, what do we do as a holy priesthood? Well, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Romans 12, 1 and 2 talks about that. We offer our lips as instruments of gratitude, a sacrifice of praise, giving thanks to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15. We proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. This same chapter in 1 Peter, verse 9. We offer our prayers without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. We offer sacrifices of doing good and sharing with one another. Um, Hebrews 13, 16. So here's where our spiritual growth shapes our praise and our gratitude, uh, our, our, our lives are being lived out as gospel witnesses. Our prayer lives are being deepened by the Holy Spirit at work. He's intensifying our serving one another. He's reorienting our suffering into hope. And that's happening as we grow together in the Lord Jesus. He's working through our devotedness to Him to shape us into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood that we might offer up spiritual sacrifices to God. There's no place for coasting, no place for lethargy, no place for neglect. If you have tasted the goodness of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord, then grow through the means that God has given so that He, by His mercy and might, might build us as a holy temple in the Lord. The last thing, Jesus keeps welcoming his church. He builds his church, he enables his church, and then he keeps welcoming us. Notice that last phrase. We're offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Through life in Christ, through the way of his death and resurrection, through the, this intensified affection for Christ as we grow spiritually, we're offering up spiritual sacrifices of our witness and our praise and our prayers and our service and our lives with the assurance that God accepts what we offer. Now, he doesn't accept it because we do such a good job. Uh, we can get on guilt trips, can't we? Did I do well enough for God to accept this? No, you didn't. Just, just go ahead and settle that. But don't worry about that. I mean, that doesn't mean you coast. But rather, we are accepted because of Christ. I love the way Calvin put it. 
He said, there is never found in our sacrifices such purity that they are of themselves acceptable to God. Our self-denial is never entire and complete. Our prayers are never so sincere as they ought to be. We are never so zealous and so diligent in doing good, but that our works are imperfect and mingled with many vices. Nevertheless, Christ procures favor for them. They are accepted, not for the merit of their own excellency, but through Christ. So whatever you're offering, Jesus says, it's welcome. I made it welcome. And so here we are, weak and needy, sometimes suffering through alienation and assaults and illnesses and brokenness associated with this fallen world. And yet, the aim when things go south doesn't change. We keep seeking Jesus through the means of grace he has given us to go to him. And through those means of growth, we come to him and we discover his sufficiency. We discover he is far more wonderful beyond anything that we could have thought or imagined. And as we glory in him and enjoy him, he grows us corporately. And he gives us the joy of being a church of holy priests who offer spiritual sacrifices that God fully accepts, not because we do so well, but because we belong to Jesus. And since he treasures us, the Father accepts our meager offerings of praise and thanks and witness and prayers. And then what happens? We want to keep growing. We want to keep going on in the grace and knowledge of Christ, knowing that until we're perfectly mirroring Jesus, there's always room to grow. And that day's going to come. Because one day... We will be like him, for we will see him as he is. Until that day, let's keep growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ. If you don't know this Christ, you come to him. Say, how, how can I know him? You come to him. You come to him through his death and resurrection. You come to him through repentance and faith, clinging to him as a gracious Savior and Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you because we are needy people. We need your grace and we need your help. We need your strength. We need Christ as our life. We pray for any among us who do not know your saving life in Christ that you would open their eyes and understanding, that you would give them grace to turn from sin and follow after you, to believe you, that you died for them and rose from the dead on their behalf, that they might know and experience Jesus' life. We pray for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We ask that you would enable us to find our life and joy day after day, to not cheat a day, by following our own selfish desires, but every day discovering more and more of the treasure of what it means to be in union with Jesus. We pray that you will strengthen us as a body, as a group of priests that are gathered to offer up spiritual sacrifices. We thank you that you accept those sacrifices through Christ, and we pray that you'll help us to be faithful in all that we do that we might do it to your glory.
Through Jesus we pray. Amen.